Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Our guest on today's show is the writer and artist James Bridal. But before we get to that, remember to rate, like, review five stars on Apple Podcasts for the Book Shambles podcast. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to get extended episodes and lots of other goodies. We've got lots of behind the scenes stuff coming up as well on the Shambles documentary that we are making that you might have seen some information about on our social media channels. Also head to cosmicshambles.com slash bibliomaniac to pre-order Robin's new book, Bibliomaniac, uh, with uh, exclusive art cards that you can only get through the Cosmic Shambles shop. And also from that site, you'll see uh, tour dates for the bookshops that Robin is visiting throughout the end of 2022 on the Bibliomaniac tour. So be sure to go to the site and have a look at that. We're still adding a few more dates to those already listed and we'll be continuing on into 2023 as well. And finally, if you happen to be up in Edinburgh for the Fringe Festival, do go and check out Lots of our Shambles pals who are up there doing shows. Josie Long, of course, as well as Grace Petrie and Joe Neary and Ben Moore and Stuart Lee and Charlie George and Mark Watson and Gecko, Rachel Paris, Marcus Brigstock, Mary O'Connell, loads, loads more. Do support them if you're up there. They are all great shows, of course. And that is enough announcements for today. Let's get on to today's episode. Here is Robin and James. James, tell us everything else about the possibility of alternative intelligences in trees and uh, gibbons. Oh, no, that might be too much to do all at once. Uh, hello, welcome to uh, James Bridle, who's written uh, a, a kind of book that I always love these books. I, I, I find any book that investigates uh, ideas of intelligence, ideas of, it's that great thing, Jane Goodall's book, Through a Window, which says we must always be aware that we are viewing the world through the human window. We are we are not necessarily, we, we are not, we do not have a unique ability to see a true reality. We see a human reality. And that is the thing that ways of being, I think, think deals with on on many different levels so, so James I want to start off just by saying you describe yourself as an artist as a technologist and a technology critic can you give me some sense of how each how these things led to like first of all your starting point and then how one led to the other growing out of it yeah so I've got quite a long background in tech I mean I did a computer science degree but then I also worked in book publishing and then my the book publishing started to become more computery again uh, as the sort of Kindle arrived and things like that happened. And I started to think about what, what, what happened when like big bits of culture, particularly the written word, like collided with the internet and developing technology. Uh, and I've also been a huge, crazy like internet fan for years. In particular, I thought I'd write, I always wanted to write a book about the internet and I thought it'd be a book about how great the internet was. And then I started writing that book sort of between Brexit and Trump's election. Um, and it was very obvious that that wasn't that wasn't the book. And so I wrote a book called New Dark Age that was about all the problems we face with technology. 
And in particular, one of the, one of the things in that, that I talk about a lot is what it's like to live inside large complex systems that we don't really understand. Um, and I've realized there's quite a connection between that book and, and this one in that I've been looking to see, you know, where are these kind of holes in our understanding, these things that we're missing in the world around us? And, and also, like, where do we go when we acknowledge how bad a lot of the technology we use every day and all the damage it's doing to our society? And really, those are the strands that I kind of pulled together for this book, um, because I really wanted to say, you know, what what can we do with our technologies differently? How can we think about them differently? And, and how can we kind of reconnect them with the world around us, which is obviously so urgent in the present moment? I, I also wanted to know about the influence of science fiction on your thinking, because you mentioned people like Ursula K. Le Guin, you mentioned Kim Stanley Robinson, you mentioned Charles Stross, amongst others. And, and I still find it a fantastic way of sometimes getting into those very big ideas in which the actual evidence based information is not necessarily as readily available. Yeah, I mean, science fiction is a huge influence on me. I've been a, a fan for a long time. The stuff that I mostly like tends to be the ideas heavy stuff, whether that's the kind of more political side of things like Ursula Le Guin, who imagines how alternative societies might operate, or the kind of like big hard sci-fi of someone like Kim Stanley Robinson, who's, you know, taking stuff that we know to be scientifically possible and just running it forward to see what we could really do with it if we really meant it. And in particular, his most recent book, um, The Ministry for the Future, where he, he takes a really long look at a bunch of kind of climate related technologies and said what it would actually take to bring these into play was really, really important for me because I'm not really interested in the kind of totally speculative stuff. I'm interested in a sci-fi that sketches out what alternative worlds that are actually possible might look like, whether they're in the very near future or kind of far, far distant. But they provide us a kind of roadmap and they remind us that other worlds are possible, that we don't have to do stuff that we're doing, you know, the way we're doing it at the moment. I, th I thought that line that you quite uh, quote quite early on in the book, the Charles Stross one, which I'd not come across before, that idea that the nature really of the capitalism that we're in is the equivalent of an alien invasion, that corporations uh, are ultimately not us. They are not, they, they, their interest is not on a human level. Corporations are that alien invasion. I thought that was a really rich vision uh, as we look around at various different branded buildings and packets. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a common feeling, I think, to find oneself kind of lost amongst these sort of brands and corporations and, and these kind of vast powers, uh, intercontinental powers, ones that kind of slip out of human reckoning um, uh, and, and to feel a deep sense of, of um, uh, what's the word, we're just essentially being lost among them, that they don't operate at the same scale that we do, they don't have the same interests that we do. And I found there's something very, you know, connected to that, to our, most of our feelings about technology. We somehow at some level are aware that we're interacting with something that is that is deeply inhuman. And at the same time, we're endlessly fascinated by it. I mean, one of the spurs for this book was trying to understand why culturally we're so obsessed with the idea of artificial intelligence. Because most artificial intelligence that people talk about that actually exists in the present is, is not very interesting. It's kind of chess playing games, or it's self-driving cars. They, they have interesting results, but they're quite small, tiny bits of what intelligence constitutes. But the idea of artificial intelligence seems so huge for humans. We're just obsessed with it. Uh, and trying to work out why that obsession is so persistent what it tells us about our interest in the world, but also what we can, uh, what we can understand about the world.
because my kind of growing realization that maybe the the cultural role of AI isn't you know to essentially replace us, which is mostly what seems to be worked on, but to kind of open us up to this idea that other kinds of intelligence exist. That's what really fascinated me. Um, and that's, you know, that's the, that's the hint that you get there with the kind of the realization that corporations, these things that we've already built, are, are another kind of life form, another way of, a way of kind of structuring the world around us. Uh, but again, as I keep saying over and over again, just one way of structuring it uh, that, that allows for many, many other possibilities. Yeah, I find it, I was thinking a lot when I was reading your book about different senses of kind of supremacy that human beings suffer from. And I mean, you know, obviously in terms of that, I was thinking a lot of some of the kind of things like Native American cultures and uh, the Australian indigenous cultures where because they weren't writing cultures, from that point, it means that they haven't left as much of a, of a trail of what they've done. And, you know, there's very interesting, I'm sure you probably know books like Dark Emu and things like that, which, which, which will, which you start to go in terms of understanding intelligence, we're barely able to understand intelligences that are any step that are outside the culture we live in of in terms of human intelligence. And I think it's robbed us of, of many grand narratives and ideas because of that, this sense of our supremacy. Yeah, and I mean, it's really important to say that a lot of what I write about in this book would be incredibly obvious to people from other cultures, particularly ones that are more connected to the earth, that have a grander sense of ecology, that have, for want of a better term, a kind of animist component to them that already recognises the kind of liveliness, vitality, the beinghood of non-humans. But certainly in, in the West, in Europe, in North America, certainly since the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, our society has been characterized by this desire to kind of draw lines between us and other beings. And, and also, of course, between, between us and other humans, between Western and other cultures, between men and women, uh, between different races. And that's been the, the product of a particular kind of scientific thinking, really. Um, I'm a fan of the scientific method um, as one way of constructing knowledge about the world. But it is only one way. And in particular, it has this tendency to kind of break everything down into its component, um, component pieces. You know, it looks at a plant and only sees like a series of tiny mechanisms rather than a whole organism. Or it looks at, um, you know, a, a, an entire ecosystem and only sees the activities of particular individual organisms within that system. And that's starting to change. And I, I think what's happening there is, is actually a coming together of those different ways of thinking. It seems really significant to me the way that the idea of ecology, for example, which is, um, you know, the, the understanding that actually all of these things are interconnected, all of them are part of much, much larger systems, has kind of slowly spread through the sciences over the last kind of 80 to 100 years. And each science in turn, the botany, um, kind of uh, natural sciences, biology, but also like economics, mathematics, sociology, has slowly had this kind of ecological realization where it's had to transform itself from being the study of kind of tiny component parts of things into much larger kind of network systemic studies. And that really, for me, mirrors our kind of our own understanding of the world as it spreads out from being this, this constant like breaking down and drawing of lines into something that actually emphasizes kind of relationship and connection overall. Yeah, as someone who regularly works with a physicist, you know, the number of times that he'll just say things like, you know, oh, but it's all atoms in the end or, yeah, well, ultimately it's atomic theory. And you go, well, no, that really is the, you know, that, that, that's, you know, architecture is just sand. 
but you really do need to, you know, and, and, and I find that it's, it's like when Francis Crick would talk about, you know, and, and when he talks about the bundle of neurons, that we, we, we're just a packet of neurons, I think he said. And, and that, that to me is totally unhelpful. It doesn't tell us anything. And if anything, it disheartens people when they don't need to be disheartened because the story itself is 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 far more um, elegant than that, apart from anything else. One of the things that, again, I've become more fascinated by is once I started to realise that even hard, you know, hard physics is still predominantly dealing in some ways with a metaphor for reality because we can't actually get into it. But it is, you know, it doesn't it doesn't stop it from being a, 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 a truth and a scientific truth. But that we're always dealing with kind of metaphors to try and understand whether it's the Higgs boson and the Higgs field. That's what human beings have to use. That's the way that we are. And I find that so that journey that people might take, which will because I think so much, again, going back to the kind of a lot of the folktale stuff and a lot of the stuff which I think got written off because everyone just imagined, oh, these people believe there's a dragon that lives in the volcano and blah, blah. And you go, well, actually. They don't necessarily believe it's a story. And within that story, they are, you know, it, it's like as Neil Gaiman talks about the fact that if you just say, just so you remember, that volcano every 23 years erupts, remember that. And then a few weeks later, you go, oh, bloody hell, how many times? Ago? But if you go, there was this volcano, it was created from a dragon's bottom, and then one, about, or whatever it is, you end up with this big story, which also properly attaches the important bit of the information and also something rather glorious about the journey to that information if that makes any sense what i'm saying and, and uh, I it, that... it makes total sense because actually one of my a favorite place of mine in greece where i live um is is the the plain of megalopolis uh, which is in the center of the peloponnese and uh, i go hiking up in the mountains above it but you're always looking down into this huge plain and in the middle of this plain are two huge ugly belching coal-fired power stations constant huge plumes of, of smoke and, and cooling towers kind of blasting up. I and mean, they look kind of spectacular from a distance, but they're definitely bad things. But the reason they're there, the reason they're there is that because that entire plane is made out of lignite, which is like this really dirty type of coal, but it's right on the surface. You can open cast mine it and you can burn it like right there and generate electricity. But the thing is, if you go back into the mythology, into, into, into the Greek stories about Megalopolis, this was, of course, Zeus's domain. This was, in fact, Zeus's basically target range, and apparently where he used to go and practice throwing thunderbolts, because hundreds, if not thousands of years before there was an open-cast mine and a, um, a power station there, there were occasional underground fires when like lightning or something would ignite these, these seams of lignite and, and burn and explode out of the ground. And so they had... In, in, in their own way, a like deep understanding of the geological nature of this place that was, of course, in those times described in described through um, the existing frameworks of mythology rather than through ah, a natural resource we can burn. But the connection is, is obvious and clear and it is simply different ways of describing a place. See, I love all that. It's like when I was most recently in New York and I just really got, you know, when sometimes you really get the sense of the genuine throb of the city and you start to listen to all of the different hums of the city and the noise. And, you know, New York, I think, is one that I think of in particular in terms of just this. You, you get the sense of the mechanism, all of the mechanisms that are keeping everyone breathing in that situation, in a hot city. And, that. and you know, and I did start to see, the, you know, this enormous, magnificent beast that lived underneath the city. And all of the things that went on in the way that what it drew in and what it expelled. And it added, as well as just being, to me, I had a great time just lying on my bed with jet lag, 
imagining this monster, but I was also thinking about what is required for a city to live and breathe. So it's somewhere within that were pragmatic ideas about the problems of modern civilization, but also I'd found a place for a great big uh, angry spiny beast as well. And that, that, do you know what I mean? It's like, I just, I, I just think that sometimes we, with finding that way of, there are so many grand questions to ask. And I think, you know, we, we do ourselves, a, I'm trying to remember Robin Lack, the ornithologist. Uh, this was a lovely line. It's kind of connected. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Hugh Warwick, who's a hedgehog expert, uh, amongst other things. Um, and uh, I think I think it's Andrew Lack, who uh, was an ornithologist. David was a religious Lack. person. Was it Andrew Lack? David. David Lack, right. Is it David? Oh, because well, there's the, a the, as well. The ornithologist Lack who is in my book is a David, but maybe there are more. Oh, maybe. Do you think his dad was not? Because I know there's a, his son was an ornithologist. Oh, well, well but oh, maybe you've got the same light, but it's that one, which is, maybe I just didn't know. The uh, scientists do themselves a great disservice uh, if they dismiss the intangible. Yeah, that sounds entirely reasonable. Could have come yeah. from any, any number of Lacks, I imagine. And I just think that that's such a, again, that that bit which it allows you to have a world that is not merely a world of equations. That the two, you know, we, we're in a, I think as human beings, we are in a perpetual state of cognitive dissonance, even if we're not just, you know, rab, rabid kind of, you know, bigots and stuff who are somehow balancing just, but I mean, just generally, just being human, I think, requires some form of cognitive dissonance to battle with all the existential anxieties and and the reality of what it is to be on a living planet yeah and a, and a very and a healthy relationship with kind of doubt and uncertainty as well and um, because you know you, you talked about particle physics earlier i mean I, I spent some time at cern a few years ago on one of these kind of artist residencies they do having conversations with with um some of the physicists there, particularly those in the theory department, actually, which is quite small at CERN. Most of them are just massive engineers, but um, uh, there was a little theory department there as well. And I was kind of talking about my weird ideas about, about how we needed to understand kind of uncertainty and doubt in order to live amongst these kind of large complex systems that, that we live among, particularly like the internet and related systems. And I was kind of interested in what they'd say about it. And of course, they totally got this immediately because people who really practice science particularly like deeply abstruse abstract areas like like kind of particle physics in which you can't touch any of the stuff that you're talking about they're totally they totally understand that this nature of doubt and uncertainty and the limits of what we can know and describe kind of meaningfully and actually for me that's that's far far closer to um to kind of traditional animist belief systems, non-Western belief systems, than, than anything that most people will espouse. The people that we hold up as being the kind of ultra rationalists, um, the people who work most with these kind of abstractions and the hard science are actually people more than any, aware than anyone else that, that most of the world is indescribable, mm. um, that most of it is actually completely you know, impossible to reach with, with, with our senses. Um, and, and, and will always remain so because of the because of the bodies and minds that we inhabit. Um, and so, you know, the, the task then is to is to figure out what it is, what, what can we know about the world and what we have to not exactly take on trust, but to um, to be able to approach and deal with with the understanding that we can't know it in that way, when that knowing is always a kind of dominating 
essentially when that when that knowing is always a process of kind of taking something apart to the point of destroying it which is you know what we've been doing for a couple of hundred years um but if we're capable of approaching it with a little more a little more humility and a little more thoughtfulness we can actually maybe learn something that's more useful than just like what are you made of mm, i think i said you so i mean I, I mentioned him a great deal on the on on this show but you know one of the things that i particularly admire about alan moore is that alan is able to have a, a very deep understanding of scientific ideas and at the same time have a place for for myth and fantasy and 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 mysticism and i think that's an interesting balance to find which is there are because what i find with a lot of people for instance who are pseudoscientists what they say is they swap one uh idea of a truth for another you know, belief, a full-on full belief. Though. So, so a lot of people who say, oh, you've got to have an open mind, you find out they've opened their mind, stuffed a new dogma in it, and then sealed it again. And it's not an open mind. You know, that, you know when you look at the David Icke's and all of those kind of people, they have a very specific uh, agenda and a dogma and a very limited and and but I think that and I, I think perhaps that sometimes we only we can only see those extremes and we don't see enough of the Alan Moores who are able or Ursula Le Guin actually again I think is someone who is uh you know the, the richness of 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 her imagination and the depth of her understanding of of what it is to be human uh every time I've heard any of the lectures that she's she's done or the books that she's written she seems to be able to deal with these quandaries yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in, I mean, the, 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 the statement also from her that actually is kind of foundational to this book and probably to everything that I do really is a, a little note she wrote many years ago in response to, um, in response to critics of science, fi science fiction critics who basically said there wasn't enough science in her books. Like she always gets lumped in with science fiction and that's like a genre deal. And we know how diff troublesome that is generally, but she's one person who really is just like, you know, just, does not obey any of those kind of boundary laws but you know she got a lot of stick from critics who said oh there's not basically they just said there's not enough rocket ships in your book is basically what they meant and she wrote this little note that you can still find online in various places called uh, like a note on technology when she she first of all she says like okay what is technology and her definition is like it's the she says it's the kind of active material interface of humans with the material world right so it's like how we interact with with things the things that we make and and, and how they how they allow us to interact with the world. And that definition, as she points out, doesn't just include like rocket ships or fighter jets or you know, the internet, like high technology. It includes like clothing, fish hooks, like um, sewing needles, like the real stuff that we use to affect the world. But she makes another point that I think is really, really, really key, which she says actually like, and the point about all those things is that we made them and any of us can make them. She's like, I don't know how to like, uh, build a car or even to make a pair of shoes but I could learn like that is the real point of technology it's what we can learn to do because it's what humans have been learning to do forever and that for me like shifts a huge amount of the the question of the debate around like the effects of technology in the world or, or really human capabilities in the world when the emphasis is not on the things that we make but on the fact that anyone can make them and then any debates about, about their efficacy, what they actually do in the world, stops becoming a debate about those things themselves and becomes a debate about who's making them. 
like who has access to this who um who has the power which is of course what, what Le Guin's work is really all about but I find to be incredibly powerful that you just keep coming back to this question of like power and agency over like the nefarious nefarious effects of any particular technology that was what I uh someone just tweeted a little bit earlier today I think the statistics, I please, anyone listen to this, do check this. I don't know. I'd literally just seen it in the tweet, but it was someone that I trust. You said that 97% of the mRNA vaccines for uh, COVID have just gone to the rich countries. So all, all the richest countries, I think the top whatever richest countries have, have all the, and again, the, that spread of, of, of medical technology, and I think that's, but that's, I mean, that's something. So by the way, I've just done this thing where I went, I, I don't normally, I, I sometimes write a few notes and uh, cause I, but as you can see, I'm generally tangential. Uh, and, uh, and I suddenly opened a, a file. I went, Oh, that's what I did with the notes for James. But this is the notes from the last time I read the book. And they're entirely different to the notes that I've taken from the time I read the book yesterday. So what, what came up on a second time? Well, I'm go- I can't find those because this okay. is uh, William Blake definitely comes up because I love talking about yeah. William Blake. But I, I, the first time I particularly want to talk about the notion of the ecology of technology, which you kind of started off by by talking about uh, anyway, uh, and the search for the efficient paperclip. So these were the notes, and then I've got a umvelt that was very much that was going to be in there, and Darwin's experiences with Jenny the orangutan. Whereas I know that one of the things that I wanted to talk about this time was the way that you combine Darwin and Duchamp. So last time I wanted to do Jenny the orangutan, and I don't even know why I wanted to do that. Everyone, that story's fine. We can leave that story. But I loved that, you know, the 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 um the the bride stripped bare by bachelors, isn't it? I think the, yeah. the, 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 the that piece of work, how you could can you tell us a little bit about how that connected with Darwin and how you've connected Darwin and Duchamp in terms of this understanding? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is me being deeply tangential, but in ways that made a lot of sense to me, um, which is that while, you know, reading, researching and thinking about all this, I, I read quite a lot of stuff about Darwin. He crops up in the book quite a lot. and He was way more interesting than I, than I ever knew. And, and, you know, it's really obvious to what extent he was, you know, he was thinking and exploring things that are not generally well known about or part of his legacy. Even the ideas that have come down to us have mostly come down to us in very distorted forms. And his ideas about evolution were far more open than most of the kind of um, neo-evolutionists mm. of the present kind of would, would generally admit to. But like one of his weird interests uh, was, I mean, he spent ages working on plants and not on the evolution, but just on their kind of the, how they how they how they worked and how they moved. And he wrote a book with his son, Francis, uh, called The Power of Movement in Plants. He became really, really interested just like how do plants grow and what are the mechanisms for doing this and movement and so on and so on. And so in order to figure in order to understand this and literally to see it, um, they constructed this incredible crazy apparatus and i'd love to have heard the discussions that kind of led into creating this thing but what they did was they basically had a big greenhouse with various plants in it kind of you know imagine just a big plant or just a seedling in a pot on a table and then they'd hang like two sheets of glass at right angles next to it and they'd sit on both sides and using like holding up a pencil to their eye they'd with the perspective sitting in exactly the same place they'd make a dot on the glass where a particular point of the plant was and then they'd sit there for hours tracing as that particular point moved and so that they could see over, over like 24, 36, 48 hours, 
to what extent this plant moved and the shape of that movement. And this book is filled with all these amazing diagrams. They look like kind of aeronautical displays or something, these amazing kind of loops and curves, tracing the actual movement of these plants. And it was this way of translating, well, you know, something that really does exist outside human perception, which is most of the movement of plants, into something that we could see and feel and understand. It's, it's basically early time-lapse photography before the camera existed. And before, before we had that technology for seeing it, they invented this entirely different way. But I was, I was also just completely entranced by, by this image of like these little drawings on these huge sheets of glass and thinking about um, Duchamp's, one of his most famous works, which is The, the Bride Stripped Bare by uh, her bachelors, also known as The Large Glass, which is this two huge pieces of glass in a wooden frame that was kind of, Duchamp considered it his masterwork. Um, and he worked on it for kind of 20 years. He didn't show anyone for 20 years. It kind of sat in the corner of his studio because it's also a work about time and about what we can know about the world and how we can understand things. And, and it's, a, it's a completely esoteric work and there's many different readings of it. But one of the, the main aspects of it is that largely created by kind of chance encounters and like things that happened over time outside of the artist's control. In particular, there's an area on which basically left it in the corner for like six months, not thinking about it, it got covered in dust. And so it actually varnished over the dust to like hold the dust in place. Or there's these weird little kind of strange net figures at the top that are actually uh, sketches of his curtains blowing in the wind at different times. And most famously, uh, once when it was on its way to be exhibited for the first time, it actually got cracked. Someone dropped it and there's a big crack in the glass. And he insisted that this was absolutely, you know, part of it as well. So it's this repeated attempt to kind of capture like the world as it expressed itself rather than like the artist's individual intention that seemed to me to have a deep relationship with what the Darwins were doing in their drawing on glass, which was an attempt to kind of bring into view things that are not normally seen by humans in order to change our awareness of the world, to bring us kind of closer to it um, and to kind of allow for the possibilities of new understandings to emerge. That, now, now I was thinking about that, the Duchamp, now we're on Duchamp, let's do a tangent there. Because one of the things that I find fascinating about Duchamp, I went went and saw, I, I saw an exhibition in, in Sydney and also I saw the collection that the museum in Philadelphia's got. And one of the things is I really love Duchamp, but I'm never particularly moved when I go and see the art. And I find him interesting as an art where you go, to me, it is the stories of the process and the art. And I'm, so I'm glad the art exists because I'm glad it led to those stories. But I found that in it, because I know some people would happily write something off if they don't. Well, I looked at it and, and it wasn't beautiful or it didn't move me. Whereas with Duchamp, I don't mind. And, and you might be very, you might have a very different experience, obviously. It's very, very, very subjective thing. But I love looking at the things because I now know some of the stories about them. And I love thinking about what a mind he had to make these things. But a bit like if you go to a space museum, you know, you might look at a few of the gadgets and the paste and stuff like that, but it's never the same as the actual sensation of watching a rocket being launched or of seeing some of those, the, the, and, and I, but the two are vital. That for, for one to exist, the other must exist. So I just find it, I, I was just wondering as an artist that, that I, I, again, I've become increasingly fascinated by there's some art that I don't, it, it, it would do nothing to me if I just saw it in a room. But when I then find the story, and I, I think Duchamp is probably the first example I can really think of that I, I, I love reading about Duchamp and I love going to see the work, but 
I don't emotionally react like I would if I went to see Robert Rauschenberg or Louis Bourgeois or someone like that. No, I mean, Duchamp is the, is the first artist who did that. Um, I mean, he, he started everything. And, you know, it was 120 years ago now. It's insane. Um, and we're still, we're still not even, like, beginning to understand what he did. Um, and it's so incredibly powerful. But I think what you're, what, one of the things you're talking about is the fact that, actually, most of this stuff Duchamp was doing for himself. Like, if you spend 20 years in, you know, muddling around with this thing in a studio, then most, most of one's thinking about it, I would suggest, is really not about what any particular audience is going to make of it. Of course, he was a showman and he had his, like, he had his moments, quite a few of them, and he liked to create a scandal and do these other things as well. But his absolutely primary, um, like, um, in, it, like, interest was, like, what will... what what will it do to me to do these experiments? Like, what, what, how do I come to understand something? And these works really are works that kind of fall out of the side of that process. They're the, the results of an ongoing process of personal inquiry. And, and to be honest, I, I don't think he'd care very much whether you got it or not, because, yeah, because they were primarily for himself. And I, I, really, I really resonate with that because it's something that I, I feel quite a lot in my work. It's, it's really gratifying and wonderful and I don't want to disclaim the joy of like sharing the work with other people but it, they tend to be processes of like can I understand this thing for myself if I can explain it later to other people great but the, the real the heavy thing is like getting into it oneself um but there's the, the other the other same side to that is that um is what I've come to realize is the kind of value of, of, of embodiment of these kind of things. That it's particularly when we're talking about building relationships with the ecological world, with, with ecology in general, with the natural world, with the, with the more than human world, which I write about a lot in the book, then those are things that cannot be understood really by reading alone or even by thinking alone. And actually time-lapse, which I mentioned earlier in related to Darwin, is a really, really good version of that. Um, because I made quite a lot of little time-lapse videos myself while writing the book. I got a little, you can buy them for like a hundred quid off Amazon uh, or other stores. Um, uh, you can buy these ones that are made for um, like construction sites to make really simple time-lapses. They're like, like two inches high, you stick two AA batteries in them and put them in the corner and they'll film for weeks all by themselves. They're amazing. Um, so I had one of those and I was like pointing it at plants around my house and then at stuff in the garden. Um, and, and the effect of that was also was already incredible. I mean, they, they use them a lot in the new David Attenborough, like to create this kind of incredible sense of wonder, which it does, um, of like, you know, whole forest burning, bursting to life, mushrooms popping out the ground, whatever it is. And you do get this kind of incredible sense of how vital the world is. That we don't always pay attention to mm. but but the real real effect for me was actually not just watching that footage it was the fact that i'd done these experiments for myself it was that i'd also kind of internalized how long it took like it wasn't like it wasn't just watching one of these things on telly or on the internet it was like i'd had to go through the process of making it myself of spending the time and so i'd also internalized the real time it took or at least the human feeling of that time as well as the kind of sped up time that revealed this thing and there's such a difference between doing these things oneself and just reading about them that that, that really really does matter and i think that's true that's really really true of kind of artistic process as it is as any kind of like philosophical thinking or artistic you know or design artistic making whatever it is 
um, or of just like one's feeling towards the natural world. You can read as many books as you want about how great nature is, but until you've actually just gone for a really long walk in the forest while thinking about those things and actually met those trees, given them a hug and maybe had a little chat with them, like it just doesn't have the same meaning. And I think that's really, really important. I, I wanted to just again, go, I wanted to go back to when you were talking about that process of, of, of uh, for you of understand and that made me think of i know brian eno's a a, a, a big fan of, of of your book and i i had a, a conversation with him a while back where we were talking about art and science and i was just mentioning about the fact that i felt that it didn't mix up enough in terms of the way museums are done and galleries are done that i would love to have a gallery where at one moment you're looking at earth rise and uh, at the next moment, you're, you know, looking at an Alice Neal painting of some, you know, revolutionary in, in Greenwich in, in religion in the 1920s. And then the next moment you're looking at Crick and Watson's double helix and that, you know, this kind of thing of that, that. And he did. He felt that because I said, I think that sometimes when I look at certain pieces of science, I will I get, you know, looking at Earthrise from the Apollo 8 took. I think the sense I get with that is also the same sense I get at looking at, say, my favourite Stanley Spencer. There is, uh, it might then eventually break down into separate questions, but the initial experience, the initial, and, and I wondered, and, and, and Brian was kind of, he really does see that the, he did it as far as he said, you know, we, must, we shouldn't mix art and science. It's a very kind of messy thing to do. And, uh, but I think it is that it can be mixed there anyway. And I think the process you're talking about is art and science going together. And I, I mean, it's like when I, I love when you find out about Turner's paintings and you find out the process he had of making his paint, of adding the, 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 the beeswax to the paint, of, of thickening the paint to create these kind of, you know, increasingly, you know, magnificent, but only light, you know, that painting of light that all of the, the, the process he had to do to discover how he could make the thickness that was required to then create that light. I, so I just, I just wondered about your sense of, of how much we can see there a real blurring of the two cultures. Like, I'll, I'll be completely straightforward and say, I think the division between art and science is completely rubbish. Like it's a completely false dichotomy that does no one a service and is entirely socially constructed and is based largely on, on like people's personalities and how they choose to like develop the world and also our educational system, which kind of splits them at the root and, and has decided these two are totally different ways of thinking and not complementary and we need to only do one or the other. And it's, it's a disaster and it continues to be a disaster for our culture. Um, but it is the one in which we're, we're sitting in. Um, and yeah, I've done a bunch of these kind of like art science sort of programs. I mentioned going to CERN earlier. And then I like subsequent to that, I was on a panel in Liverpool a few years ago with um, well, there were a bunch of artists who'd been to this program and a bunch of particle physicists from CERN. And I remember getting really angry at one point because one of the physicists said something, just said so casually, well, you know, obviously I don't know much about art. And I was really angry because, because I, I know quite a lot about particle physics, to be honest. I'm sure I definitely don't know as much as, as this person knew, obviously, but like I've, I've got interest in it. And crucially, I think it's a thing that I can understand in that Ursula Le Guin type way. And so it, it was, it's like the, the, the refusal of either of people in the humanities to take sciences seriously or people in the science to take art seriously. It does, it does complete damage both ways. But they're entirely complementary 
ways of thinking, um, but they are different ways of thinking. And, and they, they, they illuminate different parts of the brain and they allow you to come at uh, certain questions in slightly different ways. Um, but, but like any, any really good thinking in either of them involves being um, transdisciplinary. I think there's probably a better, less mouthful of a word there, but it's the one that I'll use. Um, that basically, is, you know, spends its entire time trying to break through all of these categorical divisions between types of knowledge that get placed in our way all of the time. And all of the great discoveries in science and in the arts are moments when people realize that these two things that we consider to be separate are in fact like different aspects of the same thing. Uh, and they're really building towards something. And then, you know, I mean, particularly beyond, I would say beyond particle physics, a particle physicist might shout at me for that, uh, is like, you know, what's happening down at the quantum level um, is crucially the, this, this, this deep realization that beyond the, the atomic nature of a, a world described in terms of particle physics is this world that is just this incredible kind of frothing, fluxy field of stuff that is everything is connected. And it's not just, you know, I talk about Karen Barad in the book, who's a real hero of mine, you know, and I, I saw a lecture in which she she described um, various amazing aspects of this kind of quantum understanding of the world. But one of the things she said really stuck with me is like, we're not just talking about really small stuff, right? When we think about, about the quantum, we're not just talking about... Um, tiny, tiny atoms dancing kind of at the bottom of everything, really small things, that the quantum field extends all the way up. Uh, it's between and behind and, and in front of and around everything, including us and operating at our scale. And therefore, it's not just about science either, because as soon as you have that attitude that says, well, actually, it extends across everything, you have to understand that this has political implications as well, that has social implications as well, that you can draw lessons for our, our politics and our daily lives from an understanding of quantum physics and from all other sciences. And as soon as you're doing that, then it makes no sense whatsoever to contain this stuff within the box of science, because of course it matters to everything. It's interesting because there was one thing that, that, that she said, and I think I've got, did I note this down somewhere, which was about, uh, it was about that, that universe in the continual process of emergence and that nothing is certain, basically. that idea. And that I found very interesting because ultimately, to me, that reminds me slightly about whether free will exists or whether it doesn't exist, because there would definitely be scientists that would say it's not about, or it, it's not always, in the end, with the correct information, there will be certain determinists who will say, well, everything is going to happen exactly as was predicted from the moment of the beginning of the universe. That if you were able to take every piece of information, yeah, if you were able to, to gather all the information of the laws of physics, you would be able to predict everything that is going to happen until the death of the universe. And so I find that, but whether that's true or not, I don't think you can live like that in the same way I was chatting with some people about free will yesterday. And again, it, it doesn't matter whether it exists or not, because there's nothing we can do about it. Should we find out that free will doesn't exist? It really, we have to believe. So I, I just wonder because that, that I found that very interesting what, what Karen said, and, and I don't have an opinion either way in terms of, of the truth of this. But what I did think was, but that her, her idea is perhaps the best way to think about it on the scale that we live in and as human beings on this planet. But my, my intuition about it is that there's some kind of category error going on where it's assuming it's, it's picking the wrong units. Um, like if, 
it's 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 imagining that the unit of will is the individual for example i'm not sure that's it but something like that right i'm particularly thinking of um gregory bateson who mm. wrote you know these amazing books about ecology and cybernetics in the kind of 60s 70s um who is an anthropologist and cybernetician and ecologist and a bunch of other stuff um uh and i've just been rereading him so it's at the top of my mind um but you know he, the, he there's this famous book, bit in 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 uh, towards an ecology of mind where he's talking about the ways in which humans have polluted uh, particularly he's talking about lake erie and he, which was a real big environmental cause at that time he's saying you know humans have dumped all of their crap into lake erie and it's driven the lake mad and by extension we, we've driven ourselves mad because we're actually part of the same eco because of the like eco mental network that the the product of humans going mad is this kind of driving mad of the environment and 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 that is a result of our belief that uh the individual is the unit of survival um that the that uh, you know everything from darwin on downwards that sustains our sense of being in the world is based on this idea that the individual is the thing that survives, the thing that matters, the thing that gets sustained. And his point and the point of ecology in general is that's simply not the case. Um, that in fact, um, the unit of survival is, 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 is the environment, is the ecology, it's, it's the relationships we have with everything else in it. It's man plus environment is the unit of, of, um, of survival. And I think that's probably true of this free will thing in, in some way, that the, the unit of, of will, or the unit of meaning, or any other number of these kind of abstract concepts you want to put out, is really has nothing to do with the behavior of, of individuals as we perceive ourselves at this point in space and time. And that's, I think, also what, what Barad is talking about. She has this word, uh, interaction, is the word she uses to describe this kind of becoming together of things in the world, that everything in it is really the product of, of relationships and encounters um, that emerge every time they touch, every time anything happens. That's the real business of the world. It's not, it's not, the, it's not a world composed of things, but a world composed of, of interactions and relationships that are coming into being all of the time. That has nothing to do with will and it has nothing to do with freedom, uh, but it does have a huge amount to do with uh, kind of vitality and diversity and strangeness um, and, and possibility, uh, which I think is kind of far more interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think there's lots of problems which... Uh, just th th they seem to get pushed to the. F it's it's a bit like you know in the, in the last book that I wrote, I kind of was writing about when people have a problem with the size of the universe and feeling very lonely and scared, and it it shouldn't be a problem because this is the problem. The problem is here. The everything else should be a, a fascination, if you see what I mean. It, 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 so so, so that it's fascinating that the universe is enormous, but don't feel alone. Feel more worried about the person who lives down the road who's feeling alone and you haven't knocked on their door. Those are the issues. Does that make some some kind of you know? And in the same way, that whether it's true or not, whether everything is determined, like the you know the conversation we've just had, we've never really met before, and uh, I didn't go to any of my notes in the end, despite the fact I've now written two sets of notes. Ridiculous waste of everyone's time, and uh, and I, I'm going to believe that I came up with the pointless tangents that may well have occasionally confused you, thinking, "What the hell's this got to do with my book?" But maybe I didn't. Maybe the whole interview was not my fault. And maybe you didn't really write this book in some way. <laughs> I didn't write it. The universe wrote this book for sure. Yeah. I, can, I can tell you that for real.
James, thank you so much for joining us. Ways of Being is uh, out now. It's uh, a Penguin, and it is. And I, yeah, as I said, I really like. I, I like anything that kind of helps you again just try and imagine what it is to look through another window. You know, in that that way that that, that Jane Goodall does. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Thank you, everyone, who uh, supports uh, Book Shambles as well via uh, patreon.com. Uh, Book Shambles. I'm going to just quickly mention this as well. Uh, why not go and follow at chatuk54, which is just C H A T U K 54. That's my niece. If you follow me on Twitter or Facebook, you'll know about it anyway. She is a, uh, uh, a children's nurse and she is cycling to 54 children's hospices across the UK uh, at the moment. And and uh, trying to raise money and raise awareness uh, in memory of, amongst other things, a little boy called uh, Henry. And um, she needs as much support as possible. So if you are able to support her in any way, even just by sending a tweet and saying that you are doing a fabulous thing, then that is great. Thank you very much. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Trunkman Productions.